This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 183. I just might make mention that our beautiful intro tune comes from a wonderful independent songwriter and performer, Melanie Horsnell. That's H-O-R-S. N-E-L-L, if you want to check out her website and uh, grab one of her CDs and download. We are so proud to support independent music uh, on the show and uh, giving Mel a shout out is a great joy. I hope you enjoy that uh, intro that you get every week from her. It's one of my favourite songs, nearly 20 years old since I first saw Mel perform in a pub 20 years ago. Uh, and actually began performing myself in pubs uh, in Sydney and in nightclubs and things in my mid-twenties when I had a brief foray into being a singer-songwriter. Today's show, gosh, I'm excited. This is Dr. Jade Tater, who is my guest today, and Jade focuses in on muscle, metabolism, and mindset. And uh, I think uh, when Jade sent me across his bio, uh, I had a little laugh, but I thought, yes, that is absolutely him. Someone once described him as a mix of jock, science nerd, nature boy, and philosopher. This is exactly true. So he was a personal trainer for 25 years, still produces video-based workouts to motivate people all around the world, but he also has a degree in biochemistry and he's a physician. So uh, couple all of that with the uh, intense interest that he has in psychology and philosophy and you, you get a very interesting conversation that twists, turns and tangents in all the ways that I like a good conversation too. So I know you guys are really going to enjoy today. We talk about uh, health broadly but also uh, his specialty, which is integrative endocrinology, the study of hormones and metabolism. So this is going to be a really useful show for you if you feel like your metabolism is your enemy, if you feel like your hormones just don't like you and don't want to get along. Uh, Hopefully by the end of this show, you'll have a few more ideas as to what it might look like to make friends. Uh, I really, really enjoyed this chat and I look forward to diving into that in just a second. I want to remind you that this is the last week to make the most of Guy Lawrence's super generous offer. He's put together a bit of a resource kit for the community given uh, the time that we are in, the strangeness of today. Uh, Guy was a, a return guest a few weeks ago on the show, I think about three weeks ago now. We had a fantastic conversation about really embracing the present moment and the empowerment and joy and gratitude that can come from doing that. Um, And these things can sound a bit woo-woo if you're in your worst of worst and you're in a really scared place, 
But trust me when I say that was a very, very powerful conversation to listen to for these times. And this resource kit is equally powerful. So he's put together this uh, kit and in there you have an in-depth webinar uh, on his live in flow principles and the four pillars of embracing change. There's a lot of change going on right now. Awareness, acceptance, intention and action. You also have three guided meditations, two ebooks, and guys, five-step morning routine. And please don't panic. It's not this whole extra thing that you need to try and figure out how to do. It's really just there on offer uh, if you, you're curious about starting your day a bit stronger than you feel like you are right now. Uh, and I cannot recommend it enough. You have to go get this. And it's so easy to get it. Liveinflow.com.au forward slash Alex with two X's. That's it. All the details are also in the show notes if you want to just hit the link from there, Um, but you will not regret it. Uh, And I want to say a huge shout out to all the new Lotox Club members. I'm so happy you're enjoying the new format of just the simple one annual low cost membership payment a year. It's $49 Australian, which is like 30 bucks US. I think it's about 28, 29 euro and about 25, 26 pounds. Uh, And uh, what you get is basically a beautiful private chat space, free from internet trolls and people trying to sell you stuff. You get 50% off all of the Lotox Life branded courses all year round. Uh, So that's with the exception of my business coaching course, Lotox Method, and also with the exception of Thrive, which I run in um, partnership with Brenda Janschek, which is coming up soon. I can't wait to tell you guys about this year's round. Um, And what else do you get? You get free member resources. We have a little member um, portal that we're in the middle of building for you. So you'll have your own login. So it'll be easy to find everything that we provide for you over the month. We do little boost kind of challenges if you like, but I prefer to call them boosts because who needs another challenge? (laughs) And, um, and I can't think, oh yes. And of course our practitioner thread. So if you need some practitioner support, trying to just workshop what the next best step will be for you in a particular challenge you're having with your health right now, we have our wonderful naturopath Steph to help you once a week. You can post your challenge, um, in the practitioner thread any time of the week, any time of day. And then she's in session once a week and responds to everybody. So heaps and heaps of value for just $49 Australian a year. And uh, you can join that by heading over to, have I got the URL right here? I do. So lowtoxlife.com forward slash the hyphen low hyphen tox hyphen club forward slash. Uh, And again, you can just head to the show notes anytime. That's lotoxlife.com forward slash podcast. Hit today's show and you have all of the links that are relevant, not only to the club, not only to Guy's amazing offer, but also, of course, to uh, all of Jade's uh, additional offers. I've done a couple of his online courses. I've checked out a couple of his workouts. He's such a wonderful, motivating guy. And I can't think of a better time to now segue into this super helpful chat about making friends with your body and moving forward empowered. Please enjoy. Hello, Jade. How are you? Hi, Alex. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm fantastic. And it's absolutely wonderful to have you here on the Low Talks Life podcast. 
Uh, there are so many things I want to ask you, probably because I've been following you on Instagram for a while now, and there are so many things you talk about in great depth and with so much uh, soul and, and research behind. And I know, um, I know we'll, we'll go a whole bunch of places, but I thought we could at least start by hearing a little bit about your story uh, and how you came to decide to be a naturopathic physician, but, but how you decided you needed to incorporate uh, the counselling part and, you know, all the emotional stuff, because I think... For me, that just creates an extremely powerful proposition for patients when they can get that emotional yeah. support as well as the, the physiological support. Yeah, well, you know, I'm glad we're starting there because I think um, it's funny. I just did a, I just did a, uh, a keynote talk and also a, a high-end mastermind and uh, here recently, and it's been on, on the concept of purpose, like our why. And so mm -hmm. I know everyone listening to this has heard this idea of your why. So this question about how I got to where um, I've gotten to now speaks to that. And I'll tell you a funny story because um, I realized this a couple years back when, well, not a couple years, probably 10 years ago now when I first started my boot camp, maybe even 12 years. Funny how how time flies. But anyway, I was out there doing my boot camp, just starting you know, early in my business. And it struck me all of a sudden that when I was in the third grade, it must have been third or fourth grade, I um, had asked my mother, me and my brothers, we played sports and we had all these, I have two older brothers and a lot of people in the neighborhoods, we all these jerseys, American football jerseys, right, that my mom had and all the friends had. And I said, can I bring those to school? And she said, why? I said, well, I want to train my class for, you know, a football team. Mm -hmm. And she got permission from the teacher and I went out there and was, I don't know why these kids were doing what I was asking them to do, but they all put on their jerseys and I ran them through calisthenic drills and everything else. And it struck me in, my, in, in that day, 12 years ago, that literally what, you know, 35 years prior, I was doing the exact same thing, essentially, that I was doing in the third or fourth grade. And so... To me, when we talk about why and how we get to where we get to, our lives give sort of hints, right? It's almost like this spiritual fingerprint that includes all the people that we've known and know, um, all of the pain that we've been through and sort of difficulties, um, the way we uniquely think about the world, uh, the, uh, our superpowers and what we're good at, and sort of our passions and all this stuff sort of converges into us making a choice about what we're going to do, you know, sort of for a living. So fast forward very quickly through that third grade episode and then being highly involved with athletics in uh, high school and then getting into nutrition because of that and writing programs, fitness programs for my teammates and then biochemistry. And you see where this starts to go, right? It goes fitness mm -hmm. to nutrition to even deeper nutrition and biochemistry to this sort of natural medicine approach. And along the way, I had my heart broken and work several times, as we all do as humans. We have these kind of things that make us question ourselves. I worked in a bar and I became fascinated with psychology and personality. That's and where that I became fascinated with psychology when I was okay, a bartender. Okay, so you bartended oh, as well. Yeah, so, yeah. So personal trainer, bartender, merging into natural health, uh, one of the reasons I went the naturopathic route is because when I got to the choice to the time to choose uh, medicine, what kind of medicine I was going to go into, I knew I wanted to go 
be healer teacher. I didn't know which it was yet, but I had chosen and gotten it. My purpose was down to healer or teacher. And when I got to that point, I looked at the curriculum for traditional medical school and there was no exercise and no nutrition. And I was already steeped in that. And there was really no psychology and I was already steeped in that. So I was looking around for something that would allow me to merge these three sort of backgrounds, psychology and sort of physiology and sort of, uh, you know, the training aspect of things. I call it mind-muscle metabolism. Traditional mm-hmm. medical school just didn't really have that. So I went the naturopathic route, which wasn't, wasn't perfect, but it allowed me to kind of um, more completely delve into these three areas. And then I just kept studying and kept studying and kept studying. And along the way, and I'll make this, I'll, I'll wrap this up, but along the way, what happens is uh, the clients that you run into start to, if you're a conscientious practitioner, they start to um, really inform what your expertise is going to be. So I tended to work with primarily women the ages of 35 to 55 that were dealing with hormonal changes of pregnancy and hormonal changes of menopause and that kind of thing. And so I became very, very good at that and studied that. And at that time, you know, it's, it's funny, a lot of people don't know this, but it wasn't until about 2001 that a lot of the regulating bodies started mandating that women need to, needed to be included equally in some of these studies, because most of what we were learning about metabolism was done on, you know, college age males. Mm. Well, I was one of these people that was very early on looking at all these, this research. So that kind of explains how I got to where I got to. And I've been a lifelong learner. I mean, a lot of, a lot of my friends know me as a philosopher, uh, psychologist. And so they kind of joke with me that I'm kind of the meathead philosopher. So if you want to know my story, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of this fitness meathead guy thrown into a blender with a natural medicine guy thrown into a blender with a psychologist philosopher thrown into a blender with sort of biochemistry and metabolism expert. And you get this sort of mind muscle metabolism. And that's kind of what my specialty has been. Well, and it sounds to me, Jade, like you have traveled through picking up more pieces that are going to help you be the teacher healer that you want to be, right? Like you so often get to a point where you're like, hold on, what I know right now isn't enough to help this person in front of me. So I'm going to need to add that. And, uh, And that's what makes us great teacher healers. If we continue to have that awareness that we need to garner more information. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting. I'm sure everyone listening can relate to this. You know, when I was younger, I was kind of, I, I describe it this way, and I really do mean this. I'm not trying to be self-deprecating. I think I really was sort of this arrogant and ignorant uh, sort of young man. Mm-hmm. And you don't know you're ignorant and arrogant until you get smacked in the face and get put in your place. And luckily enough, I, that happened to me, and um, I had enough awareness uh, to began to change. Mm -hmm. That was the first sort of big uh, sort of hint that I, you know, to your point, started opening it up and realizing I don't know what I don't know. And I really want to learn. And that was the turning point when I made the final purpose choice, which was, you know what, I'm going to go from healer and be more teacher. And that's when I sort of became teacher, author, um, which is why I don't do a whole lot in the medicine realm any, anymore, even though um, both of these things sit side by side. But I do think purpose is a choice. Mm -hmm. And I eventually chose teacher uh, for the reasons you just stated, because I am very much um, terrified to be that ignorant, arrogant, close-minded individual that I once was. And now to me, I loathe bias and dogma. I love mm-hmm. open-mindedness. I, I know I don't know everything and I'm on uh, really trying to learn. And I think that's what makes me maybe a good teacher because I am really a student first. 
Absolutely. And I think in a world that continues to try to pull us towards these black and white extremes, uh, and for me that just never rings true, that the truth always tends to be the grey in the middle. Uh, yeah. And, you know, sure there might be like little sides to that um, uh, and edges one way or the other, and that's where the bio-individuality comes in, it's where the spirituality comes in, it's where all of that individual stuff comes in. But I think, uh, I think that's one of the things I really enjoy about the way you uh, teach is that you open minds instead of trying to close them. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting, right? We always, we have the extreme right and we have the extreme left. And I remember when I was coming up in that ignorant and arrogant state, it used to bother me when I would listen to scientists and experts talk because they always use terms like maybe and perhaps (laughs) and more study needs to be done and we don't know. And it's funny because now I find myself using all that same language because on the extreme left and extreme right, it's all about certainty in black and white. But there's another extreme, really, and, the extre- and that's the extreme middle. And the extreme middle is really about it depends. And mm. so everything that I've done um, and preach now is really about teaching people how to find what works for them. That's very gray. Science is a tool for averages, not a tool for individuals. And so I have made my life's work helping individuals find what works for them, you know, uh, in their belief systems, in their, the way they approach diet, in how they exercise. Um, it's all about, are you feeling fulfilled, happy, getting results, health and fitness in all those areas? To me, that's hugely important, but that takes an open mind and a different way of uh, seeing things. And also to your point, uh, you know, one of my favorite movies is the movie, The Matrix. I don't know if you've seen that or any yeah. of your listeners, listeners have seen that movie, but it's, it's, it's one of these movies that is all about, hey, there's a whole other world going on behind your mind. And so when you step into that and sort of understand what's going on, it changes everything. And so for me, my teaching is really about, if we're talking about metabolism, for example, if you understand exactly what metabolism is, which is almost impossible to do. But if you don't, if you just look at it strictly as a calculator, that determines what you can or cannot do with your metabolism. As soon as you start seeing it for what it really is, that it's a thermostat or a stress barometer, or you give these distinctions that make a difference, all of a sudden, you, it opens up a whole new world and understanding about why things are not working for you anymore. And so mm-hmm. This is to me where we need to have the discussion in health and fitness and psychology and mindset. We, had, we need to shift the focus to there's a particular way of living, you know, this very religious or political sort of dogmatic viewpoint and realize that we are all unique. We're unique in our physiology, we're unique in our psychology, and we're unique in our personal preferences. And we have to honor those Uh, unique attributes of self. And when we do that, all of a sudden we stop trying to chase and find, and instead we start beginning to choose and create. And that's where all the magic starts to happen. Stop chasing and trying to find something, start choosing and you begin creating. And all of a sudden life gets a little easier, including with diet and exercise. And even, you know, all of us humans, you know, we go through pain and suffering and hurt. Part of the reason that that is troublesome for us is because we refuse to get the lessons and we want to blame and complain instead. And so to me, that's ultimately where I teach, where I like to live and where I like to sort of do my work. Mm, Brilliant. And so you mentioned the word metabolism. So I reckon we should dive into that a little bit more deeply because 
it uh, seems like it might be an easy thing to understand, but really uh, is not. Um, how would you describe the metabolism as it evolves in someone's life, either based on age or particular illnesses they might have? What are we talking about in terms of fluctuations and challenges we might experience over a lifetime when it comes to the metabolism? Yeah, the, be- I mean, the best way I think that most people deal with computers all day, every day. You and I mm. are talking on computers now. Sure and so if we describe the metabolism as a computer, think about it really is the software program. So our body is the actual computer, the hard drive, the CPU, the sort of physical, tangible elements. But then we have certain elements on our body that pick up information. Like right now, you and I are speaking through a video camera and audio, right? So mm. that would be equivalent to the eyes and the ears. And so what happens is when, in order for us to have this conversation on a computer, software has to run in the background to instruct us. There's a Wi-Fi system going on. There's all these things happening. This is the hormonal system in the metabolism. And so when you start to understand that the metabolism is essentially always looking out in the outside world and determining how to respond, Right. So in a very simple example of the metabolism, like right now, the computer is looking out in the outside world. You and I type in commands and then we can talk to each other because we open up Zoom and we can have this conversation. Well, the way the metabolism does as it looks out in the outside world, it's walking around. Let's say you and I are out walking in the woods. We turn the corner. We see a black bear. Right. Mm-hmm. Our eyes, our ears pick that up. Our metabolism must respond to that. And so the metabolism begins to send nervous signals and hormonal signals all around the body to elicit a fuel response. Really, it says, hey, release sugar, release fat. Let's run or let's freeze or let's fight. Let's take action here. Mm. This is what the metabolism is constantly doing. Now, if we escape that, then the metabolism will say, okay, we got away or we fought and survived or we ran away and survived. Now we need to recover and repair. So now it's going to trigger hunger and cravings and things like that and make us eat. And Mm. so the metabolism is simply a hormonal software system that is helping our body do what it needs to do to survive. To make that even more simple, think about it like this. The metabolism is like a stress barometer. All it's doing is looking out in the outside world and saying, how much stress is Jade under? How much stress is Alex under? How much stress is the person listening to this podcast under? And then it says, given that, how do I respond? And That is essentially all it is. And once you understand that, you start to understand that uh, when you go through pregnancy, that's a different type of stress. When you go through menopause, that's a different type of hormonal software system being run. When you undergo illness, when when you're bartending, when you're doing whatever you're doing, whatever stressful events you bring to life, the metabolism has to respond. Now, here is the first mistake that people make. They know, and we all know, that if you eat more and don't move, you are just what we call in America the couch potato, right? Mm -hmm. You sit on the couch and you do nothing. Your metabolism is going to feel stress from that. Why? Because there's a discrepancy between the amount of energy it's taking in and the amount of energy it's putting out in terms of what it needs. So this can create disease. This creates issues. It doesn't need all this fuel. It struggles to try to figure out what to do with it. You're not using it. So we understand that stress. And here's how we know we're under stress, by the way. If you want to know if your metabolism is under stress, it will tell you. 
in your sleep. Your sleep will become fragmented and more difficult. Maybe you'll start waking up at 4 a.m. every morning. Maybe you'll only get five hours of sleep. Maybe you won't be able to go to sleep at night. You'll have issues with hunger. Your hunger will be excessive. It will come on right after you eat, right? You know, it will uh, sometimes be absent and sometimes be ravenous. You'll get cravings. Your mood will change. Your energy will be unpredictable and unstable. So isn't it funny that a couch potato who's sitting there uh, eating and just sitting on the couch watching TV, they're having all these things. They, they're, they're hungry. They're having cravings. They're having poor energy. They can't sleep. You know, all these things. Now, we, what we tend to do wrong is we tend to think, well, if we go the opposite extreme, this goes to our black and white conversation again. Right? Yeah, yeah. We go the opposite extreme. If we go from the couch potato to the athlete and start exercising as much as possible and eating as little as possible, that this should solve the problem. The problem with that is that also creates a huge discrepancy in energy intake and output. And the metabolism registers that as a stress as well. How do we know? Same thing, sleep and hunger and mood and energy and cravings all go out of check, right? So if you think about this, there are ways, not only is the metabolism a stress barometer, but there are ways of measuring the amount of stress on that barometer. And our job is to come back and put that barometer back in balance. So your question was, how does the metabolism adjust and change over time? Well, you just basically highlighted the first thing that you need to understand about the metabolism that's different. It's not static. It's not mm. linear. It's not predictable. It's not fair. It changes. <laughs> it's adaptable, right? It reacts. And so here's the first rule to understand about the metabolism. If you have something that is uh, changeable, adaptable, reactive, and then you try to do the same thing day in and day out and week in and week out and month in and month out, that thing has already adapted. Your metabolism has already adapted within a few weeks and you keep trying to do the exact same thing to get a result. And your metabolism is literally laughing at you. (laughs) And so what you need to understand is every time the metabolism changes, you need to change. The way you eat and exercise post-pregnancy is not the same as what you would have done when you were in your early 20s. Menopause is a different type of situation. Andropause in a man. And so this is the rule here. So yes, your metabolism changes. And in women in particular, unlike men, it changes many, many times. Women are not men, no duh, right? I mean, we all know that. But also a young woman is not the same as a mature woman. And a woman who ha- uh, has had a baby is not the same as a woman who hasn't had a baby. And a woman who is uh, under stress has a different physiology than a woman who is not under stress. And a woman who is in perimenopause or menopause or postmenopause has a different situation um, to deal with. Now, I'll shut up here in a minute, but I'll give you the highlight of this just because the next question that should come to everybody's mind is, well, what do we do about that? Like, what does that mean? How do we fix that? It's this simple. It's if you understand you are unique, which Alex and I already talked about in your physiology, in your psychology, and your personal preferences, and you understand that your metabolism is talking to you all the time through sleep and hunger and mood and energy and cravings. This is a silly little acronym I use, S-H-M-E-C, sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings, SHMEC. When your <laughs> SHMEC goes out of check, you know that your metabolism is under stress. When SHMEC is in check, you know your metabolism is uh, not under stress. So if you take those two things, you're unique, and you know now how your metabolism is talking to you, 
All you have to do is when your metabolism changes at all these different stages is work to get Schmeck back in check, work to get stress off the system. And then the metabolism will oftentimes do what you need it to do. And it will, because it's changeable, eventually change. And then you'll have to redo that process again. So in a sense, controlling your metabolism is not doing the same thing over and over and over again. It's not finding a diet, right? It's mm. actually learning a process that is repeatable. Absolutely. And it, it made me think uh, because I've struggled with weight loss for the last few years myself and actually had weight gain around like parts of me that I've never had, always been um, the pear-shaped type and all of a sudden there's fat around the middle. Now I'm 44, so that could be perimenopause and me needing to learn the new the new rules, as you say. But I had SIRS, which is chronic inflammatory response syndrome with nine years of mold exposure and, uh, and got really, really sick. And one of the things that happened in the, st- in the stages that I didn't know I had it yet was just persistent and minor weight gain over time. And when you were talking about um, stress and the metabolism being, you know, on the lookout and then responding accordingly, I would imagine environmental toxins are the same as the bear, but yep. they never leave until you actually get away from them. It's, that's so astute what you're saying there, because here's the interesting thing. Not only is the metabolism, and by the way, for those of you who are super savvy and want to know where is this happening in the body, the metabolism, sort of the command and control center is an area called the hypothalamus. And so this area of the brain is essentially where all this information from outside is coming in. That's where it says bear. That's where it says summertime. That's where it says lots of food. That's where it says no food. That's where it says, oh, it's winter, right? So it's measuring things like temperature and light and food availability and how much uh, activity you're doing. It's also measuring and picking up hormonal software signals from the body. Mm. So for example, if you have... um, Uh, bacterial overgrowth in your digestive system and, you know, quote, leaky gut or what is known as metabolic endotoxemia, and these compounds are seeping into the bloodstream, then the body sees that, the immune system sees that, sends signals to the hypothalamus, it picks up that inflammatory response. If you have a viral infection, it picks up that inflammatory response. If you are, if your muscles or your fat cells start to grow Um, too much because you're getting too much food. They secrete signals that talk to the brain. Um, When your muscles move, they secrete signals that talk to the brain. So what I'm saying is the hypothalamus and the metabolism is integrating information from the outside world with information from the inside body and then generating a response. So in your case, you're taking in something from the outside environment, which then creates an inside response for the immune system, that then the immune system is now hypervigilant. And it is under a chronic state of stress in that sense, Mm. whether you feel happy or not, because you have been exposed to this toxic exposure of mold. Same thing goes for environmental toxins or industrial toxins. Same thing goes for emotional stress. So we need to, one, broaden our sort of a concept of stress. I sometimes, you know, now call it just metabolic strain, right? Mm. It's like metabolic strain can come from inside or outside. If that strain gets too much, it can overwhelm the body and that becomes sort of this metabolic stress. But you're absolutely right that all of these things um, sort of matter. And so 
that extends our understanding of how the metabolism talks to you, right? So I talked about Schmeck, sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings, five different biofeedback, but there's more biofeedback. There's uh, actually some of the most important for women would be libido and menses. Why? Because for women, the, the primary uh, drive of the female metabolism and male too, but more female is to uh, reproduce. And so women are the gender of child bearing and rearing. And so they have a little bit more a stress sensitivity. So think about Schmeck going out of check. Mm. If the stress gets deeper, guess what else happens? Libido goes and men, you start getting menstrual issues. Another really nice way to look at stress load in the body is digestive function, gas and bloating, diarrhea and constipation. This tells you an awful lot. Uh, what else tells you? Signs and symptoms of disease, aching joints, uh, recurrent headaches, um, once you get diagnosed with a disease like Hashimoto's thyroiditis or something like that, you can even see the body giving you feedback based on these blood labs. Unfortunately, though, once you start taking blood and getting blood labs at that point, once there's a disease, what you have to understand is that long before that disease happened, you were seeing changes in sleep, hunger, mood, energy and cravings, libido, menses, digestive health. And then all of a sudden it can turn into a disease. So that's the whole area of functional medicine that is all about trying to fix the metabolism before you get to a disease. And that's kind of the work that people like myself, naturopathic medicine uh, experts sort of do, or natural medicine experts do. We, we specialize in functional medicine in that regard. So hopefully now, as you all are listening to this, you're starting to understand um, that one, the metabolism is not a calculator. It's like a big stress barometer. It uses hormonal uh, sort of mechanisms like software in a computer. It is talking to you all the time through these biofeedback sensations, sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings, libido, uh, menses, exercise performance, exercise recovery, digestive health, signs and symptoms of disease. And once you understand that, and start working to correct that for yourself, you now have a toolbox. You now at least know how to read the book, right? If, if, if I don't know, I don't speak French. If I go in and someone says, hey, here's this, this uh, book on, in French, I can't read it, right? And so what, what, we just, what Alex and I just gave you listening is we just gave you the um, ability to read your metabolism. Now you're no longer speaking you know, French. Now you're speaking English, right? Now you're speaking the same language as the metabolism. And once you can do that, now it's, you didn't solve the problem, but now at least you can begin to understand what the metabolism is doing and start getting, you know, talking about what does it mean then when I eat a big meal or a small meal or uh, extra protein in a meal and, or no protein? Uh, what does it mean if I get extra fiber or not? Well, how does fat affect sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings? What happens if I don't get enough sleep? What does that do to me? You know, so all of a sudden you start having some tools in your toolbox, if that mm, makes sense. Absolutely. And for me, it sounds like what you're describing there is just a general raising of awareness of these lifestyle factors to the point where you actually start to listen to them when something's not quite right. That's the very first step mm. of mastering this process is beginning to understand how food impacts you. It's really interesting. Actually, a lot of people, you know, like right now, 
we, we see things come and go. You and I are roughly the same age. So you see trends come and go. Right. So I remember when low fat was all the craze. And then, mm. then we had the first, I think there's, we're on our third keto diet, you know, sort of craze. There was sort of the early Atkins. Then there was the second Atkins approach. And then we have our current manifestation of keto. Of course, there was the low carb craze, the zone diet. There's all these sort of things. Right now, we have keto diet and intermittent fasting, which are all great tools, by the way. It's just whether they work for you or not. None of them are good or bad. It's just whether they work. But one of the first things I do when I'm teaching someone about the metabolism is I move them to small, frequent meals at first. Not necessarily because that's you know something that I'm like, oh, this is the way it's done. It's simply so that we can get a hold of and have more opportunities for them to measure the response. Mm. For example, if I eat breakfast and I have a bagel with cream cheese, I have an ability over the next two to six hours to see how that impacted hunger, energy, and cravings. So this is what I call HEC, H-E-C. It's a really good measurement from meal to meal. And then I can tell, oh, well, guess what? My heck was out of check within two hours. I was hungry again. What that allows me to do is go back tomorrow and go, maybe I'll try eggs and bacon. Mm. And I'll go, okay, that made me, got me to four hours, but I was still hungry. Maybe I'll just be like, you know what? I don't even really, I don't feel hungry in the morning. I'm not even going to eat. And maybe not eating gets me all the way till you know, noon and I feel very stable. So one person is going to do really well on bacon and eggs. Another person might do well on oatmeal and blueberries. And another person might do well on skipping breakfast altogether. But because if they don't try and they don't understand that food is information for the body, it's not just calories and nutrients. It's also a packet of uh, a hormonal software packet of information. You put it in your body and the body says, oh, what am I going to do with this? And start sending signals all around the body. Does it keep heck in check? or not. So my whole contention is what we would rather be doing in the beginning rather than just indiscriminately following, you know, diets that people are handed down. What we're trying to do is find out what works for me. And part of doing that is uh, putting in meals and then measuring the response. So I typically start people with these small frequent meals simply to uh, see what the response is. And this is, I think, how we want to be doing things. This is trial and error, yes but trial and error in a smart way. So it's not, you're certainly, there's certainly things that you can do. For example, if you want a, a, a really neat tool for most people to keep hunger, energy, and cravings in check, one of the best things you can do is add either protein or fiber. Uh, chicken and broccoli, basically, will keep hunger in check, right? Mm -hmm. So add chicken and broccoli. The problem with that is, though, that doesn't oftentimes satisfy the brain. And so to that chicken and broccoli, now you can add a little bit of salt or a little bit of butter or a little bit of, you know, olive oil and vinegar. And then maybe now you've got hunger and cravings under control, but maybe your energy's not there. So maybe to that chicken and broccoli, you add a little bit of baked potato or a small amount of rice. And next thing you know, you can go six hours without eating again. And that's basically how it works. We all know people who um, do this kind of stuff. Well, they're, I'm going to fast all day. And then they get to five o'clock and end up binging on binging, yeah. because they fasted all day, right? They threw their schmeck out of check as a result of trying to do something good. And so what I'm saying is what we want to be doing is learning what works for us. That's why you'll oftentimes hear me talk about try removing the egg, the yolks from the egg white, right? 
That's not because I don't like yolks. They're one of the healthiest things on the planet. Hey, egg yolks and a whole egg is I definitely want you eating. That's very healthy. However, when you're trying to discover your body, if you like eggs in the morning, it might be useful for you to see just what protein does, which is all in the egg white, versus just what fat does versus the combination of the two. And most people simply are not doing this work because they'd rather get it from Jade in a book or mm. get it from Alex in a book. Alex, tell me what to do. Jade, tell me what to do. And what I'm saying to everyone listening is that rarely, if ever, works for long because you need to find out what works for you. You need to stop listening to um, the blogs and the podcasts and the books and, and the gurus and start listening to your body. And mm. so you're right. Awareness start comes first. But most people don't want to do that work for some reason. It's interesting, isn't it? But I, I think it, it's a product of us thinking the answer is external to us. Mm -hmm. But the reason we got there in the first place was because it became so noisy out there that we had the answer and that the snake oil salesman was everywhere all of a sudden from kind of the 1940s, 50s onwards. And, yep. uh, and we just stopped trusting ourselves. It's like, uh, uh, you know, I, I love that you said that about us needing to discover ourselves instead of you personally having the answer for everybody. When we launched uh, one of our courses is called Real Food Rockstars. And it really just opens everybody up to the food system, the injustices in the food system, how to then uh, decide on uh, how to eat for yourself and your family, what different benefits you get from cooked and raw and uh, meat and veg and fruit and nuts and seeds, all the different things. And then you, you, you start to listen to your body. And I remember in the second or third day, the first time I ran that course with a couple of hundred people, I started getting all these emails. When are we going to get the meal plan? Where are the recipes? What do I eat for breakfast? And I'm like, that, if that's the food course you wanted, this isn't it. Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, it is really so important that we now start to realize that as long as justice and sourcing ethic, ethics are at the source of the general gist of how we shop for food, the rest is down to our bodies, right? Yeah. And, and one thing I'll say there is it's, it absolutely is an individual thing. And I don't want anyone who's listening to this to think that there's not room for, um, you know, calorie math and stuff like that. There certainly is. It's, it's just that in the end, right? Like, here's the way I look at it. Let's say that I'm working with you, Alex, and we've never met and you're, you know, nothing about nutrition. And I ask, I, you say, you know what, I'm a cal I'm a math person. I need meal plans and all of this kind of stuff. To me, that's perfect. I'll give you the calorie math. I can start you there. But in the end, and this is what people get wrong. Once I give you that, that's just the beginning of the process. Just because I do some calculations and discover that we're going to give you 1,500 calories with a 40-30-30 macronutrient ratio, now I'm going to see how your body responds to that. Did that keep your schmeck in check? Were you even able to be compliant? Which, by the way, if you're not able to be compliant, to me, your schmeck's out of check, right? Ah, uh, that's a great to, tip. To me, someone who's not compliant means that it's not uh, actually solving the problem for them. Mm. People will be compliant if they like it and it makes them feel good. If they don't like it or it's too hard to do and it doesn't make them feel good, they won't be compliant. So that's another aspect of this. How easy is it for you to do? But to me, that's how you do it. So I, I might start you with calorie math. But still, when you eat that, I'm going to see what happens to sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings. Then I'm going to adjust 
up or down based on that. Likewise, if we do an intuitive approach and you're like, Jade, what should I do? And I say, well, I want you to eat six small meals per day that are balanced in protein, fat, and carbohydrate. You know, think of a plate, half of your plate vegetables, a quarter of your plate meat, and another quarter of your plate starch. And then I'm going to see, did you, what happened to Schmeck? What, what meals, you know, was it breakfast? Was it the meal between breakfast and lunch? Was it lunch, the, lunch or the meal between lunch and dinner? Or was it dinner? Or was it late night? Where did Schmeck go out of check? And by the way, did you lose fat? And if Schmeck is in check and you lost some fat, then I will certainly, t- or even if Schmeck is in check, right? Let's say Schmeck is in check and you didn't lose any fat. Then I'll pull some meals away. Then I'll start, you know, um, working backwards from there. Maybe I'll eventually have to start counting calories. And so to me, it bothers me. You, we, you and I covered this right in the beginning. This, this, it's this black and this white, or, you know, this blue and this red, if we're talking about politics in the United States, or, it, you know, it's always got to be right, or it's got to be left, these extremes. To me, Calorie counting and macro counting is synergistic with intuitive eating. As a matter, like they're the same thing in a sense. The fact that that we create a dichotomy, to me, if you can do it intuitively, wonderful. But guess what? Sometimes that's not going to create results. So sometimes we have to bring in the calorie calculations and stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. the two together work great. Great. Other times you got someone who's so obsessive about calories that they don't know how to uh, naturally choose foods for themselves that actually balance out hunger, energy, and cravings. And in that case, we need to move them away from that. But the two actually are synergistic in the way we think about them. So I don't want someone who's, uh, who is listening to this to think that, that there's not a, um, a place for that. There certainly mm. is. It's really, are you getting results? Here's how it, it looks to me. At the end of the week, ask yourself, was my hunger, my energy, my cravings, my sleep and my mood and my exercise performance and exercise recovery, et cetera, was, was it stable? Did I feel vital? Let's say you go, yes, I felt vital. What I was doing, and, and it was easy. I was able to do it. It was compliant. I enjoyed it. It was great. Then I asked, well, did you lose fat, right? And you go, no, I didn't. I'm like, okay, let's try it intuitively again. But let's say three weeks go by like that, where you feel great, but you're not losing any weight. Then I'm going to bring in the calories, and I'm going to start pushing those down a little Mm. bit. I'm going to start saying, we need to get your calorie levels down. Likewise, if you're a calorie person who is counting calories like crazy, counting calories like crazy, still not getting results, uh, you know, and your schmeck's out of check, I'm going to do everything I can to get you to pay attention and be intuitive about what you're choosing to do. And so these two things work together. At the end of the week, you should have two things happen. Hunger, energy, cravings, sleep, mood, all that stuff uh, balanced and vital. And second, you should be attaining or maintaining optimal body composition. If you have those two things, you don't need to do anything else. The final thing I would say is quarterly, go get your blood labs done, you know, see what your blood pressure is and your, your triglycerides and fasting blood sugars and all that kind of stuff. And, and if you can get those three things where you feel good, you are of a healthy weight and body composition and all your blood labs and vitals are in optimal and healthy ranges. I really don't care if you're eating, you know, chocolate chip cookies all day, every day. That's the right diet for you. That's the right approach for you. Now, I think we all, we laugh at that, right? You're laughing, yeah. but we know that that's probably not going to be the case. Yeah, but yeah. I really mean that if, if eating cotton candy and cookies keeps your hunger, energy and cravings and vital, helps you lose fat and all your, all your measures are healthy, then you don't need anything else. And what we do is we're, we essentially outsource 
that to other people. You're like, well, I read this thing on keto diet. I, I don't know how many people who were who are look are fit, trim, healthy, and then they go on keto diets or they go on these programs and they ruin it. How many of us remember time where we didn't even pay attention to dieting? We just naturally just ate when we were hungry. You know, uh, you know. Um, stopped when we were full and then we went on our first diet and all of a sudden food became an issue and you know some of the research even points to the fact that dieting in and of itself is a contributor to the obesity epidemic that the very thing that we are trying to do may be the cause of us regaining the weight plus more um, because of it mm. and this is what we call metabolic adaptation or metabolic compensation it's a very individual thing but it seems like maybe 25% of the population is responding to diets in this way. 50% kind of neutral and 25% tend to get results. So when you look at diet and exercise programs, that's how it works. 25% seem to get the results. So think about that. What if the 25% who seem to get the results, what if they're all the ones, the healthy and health and fit people on social media who are telling you do this, do that, just suck it up, have willpower. Meanwhile, they're the ones for whom it works. Mm -hmm. Then there's the 50% that are just spinning their wheels. And then there's the 25% who are getting worse off of this. So 75% of individuals taking the standard exercise and diet advice are either not going to get results or be worse as a result of it. And the fix is understanding your metabolism instead of trying to find a diet and following advice from people like me just because what worked for Jade or I read his book. That's not the way you should do it. If you read my book, you should do what Bruce Lee says. It, it, you should take what is useful, throw out what is not, and remember the thing that already works for you. The quote goes like this, absorb what is useful, discard what is not, and add what is uniquely your own. So mm -hmm. anytime you do a program, that's the way that you should do it. You should go in and say, well, that worked. This part didn't. And I know I love wine and I'm going to keep it in because it, it helps me eat less. Yeah. Love it. And can we talk about calories and exercise and volumes of exercise and type of exercise? So obviously there's weight training and there's cardio as yeah. you know, two principal differentials. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and how we navigate the way we eat, which is of course a hard question because there's so many different ways to eat depending on who you are. But I know you'd have a lot to share on that. Yeah. It's a very individual response. And so, um, again, some of you may get annoyed with me, but I don't want to just, I want to give you the truth of this as, to the degree that I know it and not just feed you stuff. So I will try to give you some general rules. Just realize these may or may not work for you. But here's the first thing to understand about exercise. Exercise stimulates the metabolism. It speeds it up. Now, you might say, well, Jay, that's a great thing, speeding up the metabolism. You want a fast metabolism, don't you? No, you don't want a fast metabolism. The reason you don't want a fast metabolism is anytime you speed up the metabolism, there's a very good chance you're going to speed up hunger and cravings too. Okay, this is why if you do cold water therapy, these people, all these people you see hanging out in ice baths, the research says that doesn't help you lose weight. It does speed up the metabolism. It does burn some extra fat. Why doesn't it help you lose weight? Because then you go home and overeat and compensate for it. And uh, here's an example. This was a study done on postmenopausal women. They took all these women. They said, eat normally. Don't change your diet at all. And we're going to give you a 45-minute jogging program, essentially, to do. They all went out and did this over a course of about 12 weeks or so. And they wanted to see, the researchers wanted to see if these women would lose weight as a result of the exercise. Well, it's just what we talked about. 25% of these women lost weight. In mm -hmm. other words, for 25% of these women, the metabolic stimulation of exercise actually helped them 
create a calorie deficit. They didn't overcompensate with eating and they lost weight. It worked just the way we all grew up thinking it worked for 25% of people. For 50% of these women, they overcompensated with food enough to wipe out the calorie burn of exercise. So let's say they burned 300 calories during this 45-minute you know, moderate intensity workout. Then they went home and had a couple extra spoonfuls of peanut butter and were a little extra hungry and essentially wiped it out. They burned 300 in exercise and then they unconsciously ate 300 extra calories in the day. No mm. change in weight. The really uh, horrible thing was for the 25, other 25%. What happened with them is they burned 300 calories in exercise and then they ended up consuming 500 or 600 calories as a result of doing the exercise. And so they overcompensated. So they actually gained weight as a result of doing the exercise. Now, what's funny about that, whenever I've, I've said, told this several times when I'm talking and stuff, and I've had women and men, but mainly women come up to me and say, you know, I've never heard anyone explain it like that. And it explains why when I went on that marathon running program or I went on this particular program or whatever, I did this crazy exercise, I did CrossFit or whatever, and I actually ended up getting fatter and no one was able, able to explain. They said it was impossible, but this is what happened. I'm like, yeah, you might be one of those, those sort of 25%. So the reason I went through that whole diatribe is because you have to understand that exercise is a potent stimulator of appetite for many, many people. We do have some rules about which ones might be better or worse. It seems like walking, relaxing walking, not power walking, very low intensity, long duration stuff. Me and you, Alex, going out walking, drinking coffee, having a nice slow conversation, smelling the roses, hanging out, right? Mm. That kind of walking seems to be relatively neutral and may actually reduce cravings at least because it tends to lower cortisol which is associated with cravings but that seems to be relatively neutral now if you go out and do like i once did the camino de santiago which was putting in 17 to 20 mile walks a day that's going to jack up your um your hunger in a crazy way and actually it's funny because i did that with six of my family members and only one of us lost weight on that whole trip wow. two, gained, two people gained weight um, the rest stayed the same, right? So we saw this exact same thing kind of happen. Here's the thing that you want to think about. So walking might be your best bet so long as you're not doing 20-mile days. Um, short duration, high intensity, meaning something like 20 minutes of high-intensity interval training or a very intense 20-minute workout, seems to have a short-term appetite-suppressing effect. Many of us know this, right? Sometimes you do these kinds of workouts. If anyone's ever done these workouts, you may even feel nauseous for a time after the workout, almost like I don't want to eat anything, which gives you a little bit of time to get something in your system like protein or something like that so you don't have a hyper response and then start craving donuts. Mm -hmm. So that seems to be a short-term appetite suppression, suppressing, but then it will elevate appetite as well. But it does give you this window of time to get something in your system, you know, because we all know what it's like if you go to the grocery store hungry and craving something, yeah. <laughs> just the way you eat and everything else versus if you kind of just feel like, oh, I don't really feel like eating, but then you eat something, it kind of extends that out a little bit. So short duration, high intensity stuff seems to be a little bit better. Weight training, traditional weight training, right, tends to be a little less reactive. The thing that seems that it probably is most reactive for most people might be the traditional moderate intensity going out and, and jogging and things like that. Although I hesitate to say that because for most people who aren't fit, um, 
going out and jogging is not moderate intensity. Also, I oftentimes try to point this out to people. If you are not fit and you try to go out and jog, that is very high intensity for mm. most people. It's very ballistic on the body. It's very high intensity, long duration, which would be the worst. So the shorter the workout and the more relaxing the workout, the better it will be for hunger and cravings. The longer the workout and the more intense the workout, the worse it will be for hunger and cravings. So you're asking about calories. And do you see where as soon as I, we started the calorie conversation, I went right to hunger and cravings mm -hmm. because it does not matter if you eat a super healthy, organic, free range, Shangri-La meal, right? Everything perfect, organic, raw, whatever it is, whatever <laughs> you're, you know, all these things. That does not matter at all if as a result of eating that, you end up eating worse things and craving worse things and more things later. I would have rather you had the Snickers bar and not the salad if as a result of having the Snickers bar, you ate salads the rest of the time. Or you ate the salad and as a result of eating that, you ended up burgers and pizza. See what I mean? Yeah. This is why we have to change the way we start thinking about food. Now, most of the time, I'll give you some general rules about diet and exercise. Most of the time, if you walk and make that your base of movement, 10,000 steps per day, most people are going to do very, very well on that and not trigger extra hunger. At the same time, if you take a 20 or 30 minute resistance training workout, focused on resistance training, that's not necessarily going to either spark your hunger as much. So I tend to push most people towards that. Now, a lot of people get up in arms about that because they're like, well, Jade, I've done cardio and I look great and I've always been great and that's what I do. And I'm like, that's perfect. Maybe you're one of those 25% that mm -hmm. does really well with that stuff. Keep doing it. Don't stop. Or maybe you're one of the people, the 50% who it doesn't hurt, but it doesn't necessarily help and you just love it. Then I'm like, good, keep doing it. But if you're one of these people like, I really want to focus on my health and my weight loss, then I want you walking and I want you doing resistance training primarily. And I want you to stay away from some of this traditional step classes and Peloton classes and these very long cardio type things because I want you to control your hunger. So mm -hmm. that's the first thing I'll say. Second thing I'll say is for most people, it's not true for everyone, but for most people, focus on what I call the five S's of food. Soups, salads, scrambles, shakes, and stir fries. Soups, salads, scrambles, shakes, and stir fries. These are things that are protein-rich, fiber-rich, and water-rich. They tend to, all of those things, protein, fiber, and water tend to shut down hunger. So if you really want to know, for most people, what should they be eating? Soups, salads, scrambles, shakes, and stir fries. Soups, salads, scrambles, shakes, and stir fries. Low-fat, low-carb soups, salads, scrambles, shakes, and stir fries. Not because I hate carbs or fat. They're wonderful. It's just that those tend to be the foods that for most people can trigger overeating. So you go low-carb soups, salads, scrambled shakes, and stir fries. Then you add enough to your tolerance of fat and starch and sugar and salt and alcohol. Enough but not too much. And this will begin to help you balance out this equation that Alice and I are talking about right now, right? So the idea is control hunger first. I'll give you a hierarchy to think about everyone on the call. When you think about your diet and matching it to your unique physiology and psychology and personal preferences, think about it like this first. Number one, make sure it balances and controls 
hunger, and cravings. That is your first priority. If it doesn't, it doesn't matter how healthy you're eating because you'll end up eating less healthy and more later. So the first priority of any meal should be, does it keep my hunger and my cravings in check? The next priority should be, is it relatively calorie sparse, right? We don't want huge amounts of calories because we all know they're so easy to get and we're all sort of like in a sea of calories and we just need to work hard not to get them. We also need the next level up, nutrient density. So one, control hunger and cravings. Two, lower calories. Three, very nutrient dense. This goes back to Alex's thing about whole foods. That's why you hear a lot of people talking about whole foods because whole foods tend to control hunger and cravings. They tend to be low in calories, and they tend to be very nutrient-dense. Not all of them, but most of them. And then the fourth thing, which we now are starting to, uh, is an emerging understanding that maybe it's the first time some of you have heard it here, is you want it to be relatively balanced in hedonistic palatability factors, meaning you don't want it to be over-flavorful, overly salted, overly sweet, overly, uh, you know, potent, in its flavor profiles, because what we're now starting to understand is that stuff is a trigger to overeating. And so to me, when you think about a metabolic food, a metabolic meal, it's one that controls hunger and cravings, is low in calories, is very, very nutrient dense, and is flavorful, flavorful enough to be enjoyable, but not so flavorful. It's not pizza and burgers and French fries, right? It's kind of like not overstimulating food. It's really. not overstimulating. That's exactly yeah. right. And you want to focus on those things. Now, to make it simple, I just told you, soup, salad, scramble shakes, and stir fries essentially satisfy those criteria, mm. right? Low fat, low starch, soup, salad, scramble shakes, and stir fries. Now, as soon as you add a bunch of cheese, the fourth thing starts becoming an issue if it's too much salt. But enough cheese is great. A little bit of feta cheese on your salad, a little bit of, uh, you know, cheddar cheese, a little bit of that salt. Absolutely throw it on there. Just don't douse it in that, right? Think about, you know, like um, a French onion soup is take out the bread, take out the cheese. You have the broth and the onions. Now add in a sprinkle of cheese and a few croutons. Most people, right, that is the kind of meal we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's, and, and what I would say is, Take that French onion soup. Most people know what that is. It's broth, it's onion, it's cheese, it's bread. And most of those things are a lot of cheese and bread. What I would say is take off the cheese, take off the bread, add a bunch more onions and carrots, and then add back in the cheese in very, in very light amounts and add back in the bread in very light amounts. And you have a meal that we're talking about. Think about a burger. Go with a burger, take off the bun, throw the bun away. Forego the cheese and the bacon. Add extra lettuce, tomato, onion, and pickle. The, the fatty meat is going to have enough fat and salt to satisfy you. You kind of got what we're talking about, right? Call that a mm -hmm. convenience salad. Let's say you go to a Mexican restaurant and you get a fajita. Take off the, the cheesy beans and the uh, salted fatty rice and, you know, um, maybe even get rid of the tortilla and stick with the chicken an extra onion, an extra pepper, and salsa. And this is the kind of meal that we're talking about, soup, salad, scramble, shakes, and stir fries. This will satisfy that. So with exercise, you kind of have your regime, lots of walking, very low intensity. If you're going to go high intensity, make it shorter, focus on weight training. And then when you eat, focus on protein, fiber, 
water-based foods, soup, salad, scramble shakes, and stir fries, then you add enough but not too much of these other elements. That's your starting place. Now, from there, you measure schmeck, sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings. Is it helping? And fat loss results. And mm. then you adjust. That's the way this process works. Awesome. And when it comes to building muscle, often uh, a lot of people struggle on that front uh, and then get confused about how much they need to eat because I, I think there's a bit of research around actually needing to have significantly more calories to be able to produce Ab- muscle. Absolutely. Mm. To lose fat, you have to have a calorie deficit. There's no doubt about that. As a matter of, to me, you've got to have two things, a calorie deficit and hormonal balance. And what do I mean by hormonal balance? I mean, not things like estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. I mean, partly that, but I'm thinking more about insulin, cortisol, and GIP, and leptin, GYY, and mm. leptin, and norepa, like, you know, balanced hormones that way to, to control hunger and cravings. Because that's, mm. when I say hunger and cravings, I mean hormones. Like, mm. you know, I could say schmeck, but that really means hormones. So you don't need to worry about getting your hormones tested. If your schmeck is in check, your hormones are balanced. So yeah. to lose weight, fat, you need those two things, calorie deficit, schmeck in check. Now to gain muscle, you need calorie surplus. You can't, your body, your body's not going to not going to um, create muscle without calorie surplus. Now, there is one interesting thing that can happen in people who are beginners. Uh, they're one of the only people who can do it. Just starting out, you have calorie surplus on your body. And so oftentimes people who start uh, lifting weights and for the first time, this, is, this only happens in a very narrow window, they can use some of that excess, excess calorie perhaps, and we don't know the, to the degree of this, but we've seen it where people essentially do body recompositioning, which is essentially goes some of that energy that they're burning in fat is then used to put on muscle. And that's a very specific way of doing things. And by the way, that only happens with weight training. Weight training is the only thing. You're not going to recomposition your body typically. I mean, I'm sure someone can, some genetic freak somewhere, right? We have those types that may be the 25%. I'd say it's probably more like 5%. (laughs) But weight training is the only thing that's going to do that. But you need to eat extra calories. And by the way, Alex, here's an interesting thing to think about. If everyone listening wants a simple, so long as you understand everything else Alex and I talked about, I'll give you a simple formula. If you want fat loss, start with 10 times your body weight in pounds, um, I don't know if you guys do, you know, pounds like we do in America, but 10 we do times kilos, your body weight. But that's okay. So 10 times your body weight in pounds as calories. Okay. And what will happen is some people be like, oh my God, Jay, that's way too low. It doesn't matter because your body will tell you if it's way too low. If Schmeck goes out of check, you can just adjust it. And if you're trying to gain muscle, just go 20 times your body weight in pounds. So you'll have to do that conversion in, in kilograms is 2.2 is the conversion. Mm. So you'll have to do that, but that is a very good clinical tool that you can use and then you adjust, right? And so that's the way I would handle that. But yes, to, to gain muscle, you need calories in the same way to lose fat, you don't need calories. And so in a sense, it really is, you know, um, this is why it gets confusing, right? Because yes, it's calories in and calories out and it's hormones. Mm. It's not one or the other. It's not insulin versus calories. It's insulin married to calories. The two are the same. This is where we go wrong, which goes right back to what you and I were talking about right in the beginning, that people want to create these dichotomies and say, oh, it's all about insulin. No, it's not. Or, oh, it's all about calories. No, it's not. It's about insulin and calories and a whole host of other hormones and mindset and other things. Yeah. And so what if someone's trying to do both? 
lose fat, gain muscle. Yeah, it can be done. It can be done. It's just, it's just a little bit harder. And actually, so I would say split the difference, right? So go 15 times. Uh, that's a really good place to start. 15 times your body weight in pounds in calories. And that's a very good place to start if you're a calorie counter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not and you want to do it more intuitively, you can kind of do it like this. I have a concept called ELEL, eat less, exercise less. It's a very good way for someone who doesn't like to work out to lose fat. And what that is like is the old style Parisian or paleo person. You walk 10,000, 15,000 steps per day, you eat a very low calorie diet. And what mm-hmm. happens is, what's interesting about this is because you are not exercising like crazy and you're just moving and uh, walking doesn't seem to stimulate appetite in the same way, you can get away with low calorie states that people would be scared of before. Eating a 1,200 calorie or 1,000 calorie a day diet is not a problem for two reasons. One, your schmeck is going to tell you when it's a problem, okay? Two, as long as you're not doing crazy amounts of exercise, you don't need all those extra calories. So eat less, exercise less is a really good way. It's really eat less, exercise less, move more because you are going to be walking. You can't, Mm. like, you have to walk. There's no getting around. If you don't want to walk, I'll say this to everybody listening. If you don't want to walk, give up on weight loss. Plain and simple. If you don't want to get out there and move and you just expect to sit in a chair and be, you know, um, a beanbag, basically, <laughs> New you you're not going to lose weight, yeah. period. And it's okay, by the way. To me, I'm not one of these people that says you have to, but just be happy with that and just stop stressing about it. You won't. You're going to have to walk. So the eat less, exercise less, move more approach. This would be for a woman, I don't know, somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 calories and lots of walking. You know, that's what it would be. Now, you might say, if that's too low for you, guess what's going to happen? Your body will tell you. But what will happen oftentimes in this, you won't be as hungry. You know why? Because you're not exercising as much. Mm. So that's what happens when people, people go, that's so funny, Jade. I'm not even hungry anymore. I'm like, yeah, well, you went from 1,500 calories and all this exercise to 1,200 calories and no exercise and just walking. No wonder you're no longer as hungry. So mm. that's how to do that. Um, if you want to gain muscle, intuitively you do the eat more exercise more approach isn't it funny that we all want to look like athletes yet we try to do what athletes would never do no athlete in her or his right mind would ever in a million years eat less and exercise more they would <laughs> so suck crazy, at their sport if they did yeah and they don't look the way they look by eating less and exercising more they look the way they look by eating more and exercising more And so this is what people don't understand. So if you want to do it intuitively, that's how you do it. Gain muscle, eat more, exercise more. Lose fat, eat less, exercise less, right? And there's obviously gray zone, but we have these dichotomies. And what I want to, um, it all is semantics in a sense because it depends on you. Your metabolism will tell you. This is why I don't get into these rules where someone goes, oh my God, you're telling someone to eat 1,200 calories. I'm like, their body, if they learn, if they are listening to you, they might get in trouble. If they're listening to their body, they will not. Mm. Not you, Alex, but I mean you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get it. So to me, as long as you're listening to your body, your body will tell you if you're not eating enough. Mm. Brilliant. So good. Gosh, we could, um, we could go down a few rabbit holes here, but I do want to finish on something that I heard you talk about recently, which was the nuance between fake it till you make it and be it till you see it. Mm. 
because a lot of us uh, really need to feel like we can see something in front of us yeah. before trusting that we're strong enough to step into it. Yeah. But society teaches us to fake it till you make it. And I really liked your nuanced take on the difference between those two things. You know, one of the, one of the things that uh, my philosophy, uh, I won't even call it training, but reading and just education and philosophy. One of the things philosophy teaches you is to question distinctions. And we have a lot of this culture level distinctions that we hear and we believe. And these distinctions, these ways of thinking oftentimes trap us. Fake it till you make it's an example. Um, faking it till you make it essentially means this. If you're faking it, what that means is when Alex is hanging with me, she's doing all the right things. She's trying to trick me. She's essentially eating right. She's having salads. We go out to eat and she's ordering salads and she's doing all this <laughs> stuff. But when she goes home and she's alone, she's crushing Doritos in the kitchen. She's eating <laughs> 2000 calories, you know, in the, in the last two, you know, she's, when she's alone, she's be, she, she is doing all the wrong things. But when she, when people are watching, She's on and everyone, you know, that, and that's what a lot of people do, right? And, and people say, fake it till you make it. The, the real way this works is it's more important to do the thing when no one's watching. So I call that being it until you see it. So what's the difference between faking and being? Being is you are, you go, I want to be a healthy, fit, lean person. And you say, what does a healthy, fit, lean person do when they are by themselves? When they have a day where no one's watching, the kids aren't around, the husband or wife's not there, the friends aren't watching, what are they doing? I'll tell you what they're doing. They're moving. They're walking around. They probably go to the gym a few times per week. They, they don't overeat. They are paying attention. They are aware. They're listening you know, to their body. And yes, maybe they have good genetics too, but they're doing all of this stuff. So the idea is, I'll give you a tangible example for me. When I decided, I, I grew up in, um, as, you know, sent, living the dumb jock story in a sense. Like, you know, um, that's what I was. I grew up as a lower middle class, you know, um, kid was just the jock. No one, you know, I, I didn't have any brains. I decided, though, that I wanted to be smart. I was tired of people just seeing me as a good jock. And I started going, what do smart people do? Well, they read books. And I remember at that time, I, I started with like muscle and fitness, but I was like, I, the smart people I see always have a book in their hand. So what do they do? I'm going to have a book in my hand. And faking it would have been walking around with the book and never opening it. Mm. But I didn't do that. Being it was, I actually started reading the book and I put it down and get annoyed. Then I started doing it again. That's how I became the smart kid. And when I wanted to become an author, I asked myself the same question. What do authors do? Well, they read a lot and they write a lot. And so I started reading a lot and writing a lot when I was alone every morning, not when someone was watching me, right? And that's the difference. And so the way to be it is to think about being a method actor. And you wake up in the morning and you put yourself in character and you play that character every day. You play it so much that you become it. We've all heard stories of actors who actually get so immersed in their character, they can't come out. Maybe they're playing this crazy person uh, in, in a movie, and then they literally cannot you know, come out of that. They actually go into depression or craziness or have schizophrenic type of things because they were so immersed. That's what being it means. Faking it is all about looking the part, right? Yeah. But not doing the thing. Being it is about doing the thing. So to me, 
That is it. What when you go to the grocery store today after listening to this, how can you be the healthy fit person? What does the healthy fit person put in their cart? What does a healthy fit person eat when they're sitting on the couch alone watching TV? What does the healthy fit person do when they first wake up? Right? That's the difference. Mm. And, and this is true of anything you want to change in your life. If you're trying to fix your finances, it's true of that. If you're trying to find a perfect romantic relationship or personal relationship, it's true of that. If you're trying to become healthy and fit, it's true there. If you want purpose and meaning in your life, it's true there. Right? So we have to understand what being it means. Being it means you show up and you take the actions. We oftentimes, you probably heard of this, uh, this whole idea of, you know, the law of attraction, right? Yeah. Thinking, a lot of people have heard this, think the thing. No, thinking it is kind of, to me, yes, think, but you have to also act. And when you combine thinking and acting together, that's being. Faking is one or the other right? Acting when people are watching, but not actually thinking it in your spare time or thinking it, but not actually doing the action. So those are faking. Faking is thinking by itself without action. Faking is acting by itself without thinking. Being is the merging of thinking and acting. That's the distinction. Beautiful. What a powerful note to finish on, Jade. Thank you so much for your time. This was uh, a really, really great chat. I feel like I want to already tee up a part two where we can go a bit more philosophical. Um, but it was super, super useful. I know these topics, people just often end up going around in circles and just never feeling like they're getting anywhere. And I think what you were talking about today is re-empowering the person with a framework to actually navigate this themselves. So I really, really um, thank you for that. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'll just leave everyone with there's only one rule in this whole thing, and that is do what works for you period. That's it. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action uh, and uh, there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit uh, stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written over the past nine years of writing a blog. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added and I can't wait to see where that community takes us. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, you're going to get bonus uh, Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week.